My name is Jeremy. Welcome to Midland Free Evangelical Church. We are delighted that you're here to worship with us today. I'm the preaching pastor here. We have several other pastors, but I have the privilege of getting to stand up here and share God's word with you. Today we're continuing in the book of Proverbs. Actually, we're nearing the end. After this sermon, you have two more left for the summer sermon series. Uh, we have uh, Pastor David next week on true security. And then following that, uh, the last sermon in the Proverbs sermon series is going to be on Proverbs 31. This is the um, Lady Wisdom. And uh, that's beautifully timed because as I preach on the woman of uh, godly character, uh, my mother-in-law is going to be here that weekend. <laughs> so we got that just right. But... It's actually, that's a secret, by the way, so Poppy, if you're listening to this, please don't tell Marmee, but um, what's happening is it's actually, most people think of it as this is a time to, you know, preach at women and tell them what to do, but what you'll actually see is that this proverb applies to everybody, and I may even give you a new slant on it that you've never heard before, so looking forward to that, but today we're talking about joy, and uh, this is coming from Proverbs chapter 17. Verse 22, it says this, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. In the medieval era, uh, around the time of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, a former Roman Catholic and now becoming an evangelical, was on the run for his life. He had posted on the door of Wittenberg a Theses talking about the sale of indulgences, among other things, and, and the issues he had with the uh, powers that be. And what he had read from Romans and what he had learned from Galatians, that justification was by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, was a big deal. So much so that he and many others were risking their lives and being burned at the stake and torn apart. And at this time, he was on the run fearing what may happen to him, and papal pressure was increasing. The nobles at the time were supporting Martin Luther and making it possible for him to um, hide and evade capture. And uh, at the same time that was happening, uh, the, the pope was increasing pressure upon the nobles to give up his position, and the peasants were in revolt, and there was a big mess, and the guy was really down and just thinking to himself, probably, you know, what have I started? Nothing is working this is all a mess. And so for several weeks, he was just down. And I'm, I don't know if you've ever had one of these times before, but let me tell you, Martin Luther was down. He was depressed. He was discouraged. Everything was crumbling him. He begins to question God. Why, Lord? You know, here, you put me here. I tried to do what you want. Now everything's worse than it was before. Why, 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 why? And man, he is discouraged. So he gets up one morning and um, comes to the breakfast table. His wife is there, and uh, normally she greets him with Guten Morgen, Herr Doctor. You know, she's, that's my best German. I can't do much better. Sorry. She said, good morning, doctor. Welcome, you know, but this morning was totally different. And she was dressed all in black, her old uh, nun, you know, stuff. And she was like, she was going to a funeral. And she just had her head down, and she's discouraged, and Wow, Luther thought, boy, this really is the end. You know, if my ray of sunshine is down, I am in trouble. 
And so he looks at her and he's like, uh, Katie, what's wrong? And she just lowers her head and she's like, God is dead. Martin Luther is taken aback. He says, what? Don't you ever say such a thing. He is the living, almighty, supernatural, sovereign creator of heaven and earth. He has no need of anything or anyone. And when everything else is burned up, he will remain faithful and true. <laughs> and she looks at him and says, Good point. <laughs> right. Lady Wisdom has spoken. And there he was, st- standing condemned in his own grief and misery, realizing that if God is not dead, that in fact, everything's okay. If this same power that I proclaim every day in my classroom, Martin Luther would say, the great, almighty, sovereign, supernatural one we write all the hymns about, is still alive, and everything's okay. Now, surely we all experience the effects of life. We get hungry. We get tired. You know, there are chemicals and all sorts of things that affect our mood, no doubt. But the interesting thing about Scripture is that it gives us a different view of joy. And its view is not the view that everything has to be just right. And its view is not the view that I have to even feel that good. But instead, the scriptural view of joy is that It is something that comes from God and can occur at any and all times so long as God is God. Joy is something that comes from God and is as consistent and possible as he is. And so today as we examine Proverbs 17.22, I want to walk it through like this. This is the way I want to outline joy for you. I want to say this as we talk about joy. Joy is not something that I just tell jokes about and make you laugh and feel good about when you go home and wears off in a couple of days. Instead, joy is this. First of all, joy is a divine quality. Joy is a divine quality. As such, what will happen is you'll see joy show up throughout Scripture in three different ways, and I'll walk you through these today. And then what will happen is these three things all apply or all mirror on my next point, or my second point. So first of all, joy is a divine quality. It originates in God. Only God satisfies it. And like salvation, it is a pleasure for God to give it. So if you ask for it, you will receive it. Because God likes to do that. Joy originates in God. Only God satisfies. And in many ways, it is similar to salvation. So that's the first point. Joy is a divine quality. Second point is this, is that not only is joy a divine quality, but it's also a human discipline. It's also a human discipline. It's something that God is, but it's also something that we do. It's something that we do. I would love to be able this morning just to say, okay, hey, welcome to church. Everybody received a little box on their way in. And as you go out, just pull on that bow and open it up, and all of a sudden, boom, joy. (laughs) You get it. Here you go. Done. I wish I could do that. If I could do that, we'd be the biggest church in the universe, right? It'd be huge. But it's a bit of a process. And this is how it works. This is how the Bible walks it out for you. It says, joy is a human discipline that originates or begins in your heart. It starts with you. 
It's also something that God commands. So it's actually a sin not to do it. And finally, in another way, like salvation, it is by grace through faith. Just like everything else that Martin Luther stood for, so too with joy. It is by grace through faith. It's by faith. Joy. So joy is a divine quality, and it's also a human discipline. A divine quality and a human discipline. So let's begin with the divine quality first. It it is this. Joy originates in God. Joy is not simply an emotion or something that we feel, but instead it's actual quality that springs forth from eternal God. Like the other two, love and peace, joy is something that is inherent to God. God is joyful. His personality, if you will, his being, his essence, his character, all of that is a very exuberant experience. God is not boring. God is not doleful. Heaven will be more exciting than anything you've ever experienced before because God is, in fact, joy. Psalm 34, 8 says it like this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 16:11. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In other words, God is joy. Your search for joy that you long for, that you desire to be fulfilled, that you want so desperately, is actually a search for God. For he himself is its source, like the Nile, the headwaters of the Nile, so too with God and joy. Joy originates in God. Joy is a divine quality. Joy not only originates in God, but therefore, because it originates with him, God is the only thing that will truly satisfy this longing. This next section I'd almost call the John Piper section. Um, He does this better than anybody else in his uh, books, but especially in Desiring God. Um, And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk you through a few of his statements, which are extrapolations or um, distillations of much of the teaching of Scripture on joy. The first one is this. He says this, look, to understand joy, you've got to know that the human heart remains a ceaseless factory of desires. The human heart remains a ceaseless factory of desires. Think about it. I mean, it's not that hard. Take some child down the toy aisle at Walmart, right? You walk them down. Ooh, I want this. Ooh, I want this. Ooh, I want that. Ooh, I want that. Okay, let's not pick on kids anymore. Talk about me. (laughs) Take me to Home Depot, and I'm like, whoa, look at that. Ooh, I can fix this. Well, I couldn't fix it, but I could buy that. (laughs) Okay, let's do this. Take one of my theological friends to a bookstore and see if you can drag him out by his heels after hours and hours of reading the latest. Take someone who loves shoes to the mall or someone else who's interested in other things to the internet. And what do you see is that they are consumed with a constant desire for more. And I think that is nearly inevitable to every human being. You've got to realize if you walk and live and breathe on this earth that there are desires within your heart that you want something. And that is natural for you to be human. All of us have desires. And when we come to the point that we finally say, yeah, I admit that, then we're in the right spot. The problem is, however, that when we pursue something other than God, we inevitably miss out on what it is we actually desire. 
And all of those things are only band-aids or patches on a gaping wound. For, indeed, as Pascal says, the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. He is, in other words, the all-satisfying object of our desire. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. There is no lack of it. There is no further desire. It is finally full and complete. That thing I've always wanted and never had is actually not at the store. It's you. In your presence, just being there with you, my joy is fulfilled. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If God is truly the source of all joy, then only he will fulfill that desire. Another way that Piper says it like this is, I must pursue joy in God, because if I am to glorify him, this is the only way to affirm him as the surpassingly valuable reality in the universe. If God truly is the best thing that there is, what else should I want more than that? He's it. This should, in fact, be my greatest desire. If I stopped the sermon right here, we would be in a good place. If you as a Christian, if I as a person, if anyone could come to the point where we could actually say, yeah, I desire God more than anything else, we would reach such heights of spirituality that most people never know. God must become the surpassing value of your universe. In fact, the exact opposite is also true. If you do not enjoy him, not to enjoy God is in fact to dishonor him. To say that something other than him satisfies you more is the opposite of worship. In fact, it's sacrilege. If you think something is better than him, you are insulting him. We must not reduce God to this. So many evangelical Christians do this, and it's easy for us because we say, okay, dear Lord, please help me. Blah. Is God a genie in a bottle that we simply manipulate to do what we want him to do in order to get our desire? No, he should be our desire. We must not reduce him to a key that unlocks a treasure chest of gold and silver but instead, he must become the gold and silver itself, the thing that we desire. Only God will satisfy you. Everything else is going to fail. That magic relationship, the perfect car, the beautiful house, the big account, the whatever, it will fail. Joy is a divine quality. It originates in God, and only God can satisfy it. Well, as such, it is very similar to salvation. It's good to know, because if we just left it there, we would say, wow, then it's almost unattainable, because we cannot get God, we cannot manipulate God, we cannot produce God, therefore we can't get joy. How then do we get joy? Well, in the same way we get joy, we get salvation, and that is to ask. Because God is who he is, he delights in giving it to us. Yea, in fact, if you look at the New Testament, even some of the very Gospels themselves are structured around this theme. Take, for example, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke begins and ends with joy. Behold, the Savior is born, there is great joy. And then they run away from the tomb and they're afraid with fear and trembling and what? 
great joy. It's bookended on both sides with the idea of joy. He starts out, his first three illustrations or stories, the parable of the lost sheep. All of a sudden, the shepherd brings it home, and what? Great joy. The lost coin, the woman discovers it, and what? Great joy. The prodigal son, the father discovers him, and what happens? Great joy. God delights in redeeming and saving his people. He enjoys this. He pursues them, and he's satisfied when it occurs. So too with us, so too with salvation, and so too with joy. It makes him happy to give you joy. I've told my wife at times, if I ever had an alternate career, and I know this will never work, so you don't even have to tell me, but I would want to be like a stand-up comedian or something. Yeah, good. Because when that, man, when that works, oh my goodness, it's so fun when everybody is happy. When they receive joy from something you did, it is a delightful experience. Now, those people are super-duper qualified, and I try my jokes, and most of the time you guys go, huh? You know? That's okay. I won't quit my day job. But it is a delightful experience. So, so too with God. He loves, he loves to give joy. Many of his gospels are structured around that theme. So too the prophets say in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, Look, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God loves to redeem and save and give joy. It's who he is. That's his character. That's his nature. That's his person. God is a joyful God. Therefore, since you can't, act, since you can't do it yourself, what do you do? You've got to ask. Think of all the other things you ask for when you pray. You know, most of the time, there are solutions to provide you with joy. Lord, please help this. It's broken. It doesn't work. I need help. Lord, please help this relationship. They're struggling. We hurt. Fix it. Lord, please give me this. I am short on whatever. They're all solutions that we're asking for. In reality, we should be asking for the thing itself. God, please give me joy. Give me joy. That's what I want. I want to be happy. I don't know about all this other stuff, but I want to be happy in you. I want to experience joy each and every day of my life. As a result, you may or may not change my circumstances. I don't know what you're going to do. But I know this. Through, through my circumstances, Nehemiah tells me that the joy of the Lord will be my strength. So it's not so much that I'm even asking for you to change things, but I'm asking you to change me. Give me joy amidst this, and I will find my strength in the joy that I have in you and not in how things go. God, give me joy. Joy is a divine quality. It is something that originates in God that only He can satisfy. And like salvation, God is happy to give it. All you have to do is ask. Ask for joy, and God will provide. Ask for joy. And God will provide. So first things first, it's a divine quality. Secondly, it is a human discipline. A human discipline. As I study the Proverbs this summer, one thing that just keeps coming back to me over and over again is the importance of the human heart. I mean, every little proverb you read essentially points back to that. 
it talks about this or it talks about that. But at the end of the day, God wants to know, how's your heart? How's your heart? The heart is the center of the individual life, and it takes precedent over everything. But don't take my word for it. Instead, listen to what George Mueller has to say. He was a 19th century, that is, he lived from 1800 to basically 1898, um, director of orphanages and schools for uh, underprivileged children. He established 117 different schools and provided education to over 120,000 kids. Many of them were orphans. So in other words, he had a lot of work to do, right? He'd go around fundraising. He could talk with the powers that be. He needs to get the codes established. He needs to look at the curriculum. He needs to do this and that and this and that. But at the end of the day, this is what he said. The point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first and greatest primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how might I serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord, and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day. All this may not be attended in a right spirit. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. What does God want? What does He really want? Does He want another mega church, a super pastor, a rock star evangelist, big bunch of books, Or something to write home about? No. Instead, what God wants is Psalm 51. You will not delight in sacrifice, Lord, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering, but instead the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, these things you will not despise. God can have anything He wants. He doesn't need us. And at the end of the day, all he really wants is a pure heart. The other day we were watching uh, the classic film, Kung Fu Panda 3. And in it, what happens is this. There is this panda bear, which is, as fate would have it, the famed and prophesied dragon warrior. And as you can imagine, no one would expect a panda to be the dragon warrior you might expect a snake or perhaps a tiger or something cool like that but instead it's this great big basically buffoon and all throughout this series they're developing the character and he's always asking this question you know who am i what am i what am i doing here why am i here and in the third movie spoiler alert what happens is his biological father comes back on the scene dad Uh, One or two shows up. He's actually, as a panda, get this, raised by a duck. Okay, So he's perpetually raised by this duck and a little bit confused. Well, when dad the panda comes back, there's this tension about who's going to be the real dad, you know, and who's going to be close to Poe, and how's this going to work, and blah, blah, blah. Is it the panda or the duck, the one who raised me or the one who gave me life? What's my new station? And 
as this conflict arrives at the end of the conversation, the, the duck says to the panda dad, look, I know you messed up, but sometimes we do the wrong things for the right reasons. And it was a really interesting statement to me because here we are as human beings or pandas or ducks or whatever. And you look at life and there are so many choices we have to make. And we don't know the future and we don't know the outcome. And we're not always aware of all the information or stuff that's going into it. And so we make a decision and we try. And certainly none of us would ever say we get it right. And the great hope or comfort in it then is this, is at the end of the day, the question is not even really, did you get it right? But why did you do it? How's your heart? Were you truly loving God and loving this other person? Were you seeking after their best interest and trying to communicate His Word and bring Him glory? If so, okay. Don't worry about it. Then you do the right thing and whatever happens, happens. You let God take care of the rest. But at the end of the day, what he's really interested in is how's your heart? What does God require of you but to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God? How's your heart? How's your heart? As a human discipline, it begins, joy begins with the heart. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. It continues from a right heart into right action. And that is because God commands it. As you look through Scripture, what you see is this. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Not just once in a while, not just when things are right, but always. And again, as if you didn't get my point the first time, again I say rejoice. Let me make it clear if you didn't catch it the first time. Rejoice. This is a command. You have to do this. It is not a suggestion or a hint or a result, but it is something you are commanded to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says rejoice always. In other words, even when you don't feel like it, you need to rejoice. Now, I know that's difficult because I, certainly I've not experienced everything that you have, but all of us have had bad days. And on those days, it's difficult to rejoice. The funny thing is, as you search Scripture, you'll actually see that happening. For example, the text that says, Rejoice in the Lord always, or sorry, um, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That psalm was actually sung after battle. So in other words, in those days, battle is not we drop this precision munition on this little square box a long, long ways away, but we lined up against one another and started chopping And we may have won and they may have lost, but at the end of the day, some of our guys got chopped. And their wives and their mothers are walking around out in the field picking them up and bringing them home. And their kids don't have dads. And now this psalmist is saying, rejoice. Even on the day of battle, win or lose, rejoice. That's a very difficult text. But that is the command. And that is why we can say it's truly a command and it's only from God. Because you cannot do this in your human strength. Therefore, joy ends up being very much like salvation. It's something that you do by faith. 
You say, even though I don't see it, I believe it, and I will choose to accept it. For faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I know that things look bad, because I can look around me. What do I see? I see Syrian kids washing up on the shore of the Mediterranean. I see little kids being bombed and buried in rubble. I see children, soldiers being stolen and taken and little girls ripped away as their wives. I see abortion happening in our backyard. I see ridiculous political scene going on. I see all sorts of nutso stuff. I say, how in the world can this be right? What a mess. This is sick. Not to mention our own lives, which are full of sin and pride and selfishness and self-centeredness and whatever else. Financial struggles, relationships. How can I be joyful? In the same way that I can be saved. By faith. If I believe that God is really alive and still on his throne, then I know, although this stuff isn't good, this stuff is bad, although it's not good, God will redeem it. Because he is stronger and more powerful than all of that. If God is dead, we're done. If Christ is not coming back, then I of all men am most miserable. But if he is truly alive and if he is faithful to his word and his promise, then at the end of the day, we will win. And in that, I can take hope. And there is my joy. And there is my faith. Not in the stuff that's going around me. If I look at that, I'm never happy but in the reality of God's word and his promises of an eternal home. That is why scripture always says, delight yourself in the Lord. (laughs) Not in his gifts, not in the stuff that he gives you, not in the circumstances of your life, but in him. In him and in him alone. And when you do that, you have faithful and consistent joy because you have a faithful and consistent God who never changes and always wins. That's the only joy. And that is our hope. There was a book written in in around the time of 1913 by Elner Porter. Anybody know what that is? Pollyanna. Pollyanna. And it's interesting because what's happened to this story is that that word for this little girl, Pollyanna, has even gone into the dictionary. It's so well known, there were millions of copies sold in movies and all sorts of things that went off of this, that that word actually became a new word, to be a Pollyanna. And what that means is this, someone who is a Pollyanna is foolishly optimistic, excessively happy, or denies reality. This is what we mean when we say, oh, this person just a Pollyanna. <laughs> you know, all they see is roses. What are they, blind? But the reality is, is that's a complete misnomer for the character in this book. Indeed, her life was not roses. In fact, she was an orphan at a young age. The only relative she had in the world didn't want her, and she grew up virtually alone. However, her favorite game still became the glad game in which she tried to find something positive in every experience. This attitude began to transform her such that it influenced everyone around her. So that one day she was out 
um, walking in the woods, and she came upon a Christian minister who is greatly discouraged, a bit like Martin Luther. He's down. He's not in the Reformation, but boy, his church is a mess. <laughs> He's got fighting on the inside, fighting on the outside, budgets down, offerings bad. They're about to split, and he's just down. She came upon him, and she asked him a little bit about this, and their conversation followed like this. She said, well, I know how you feel. And her dad was a minister, too. She said, father used to feel like that, too, a lot of times. I reckon most ministers do. My father grew mighty discouraged until he found his rejoicing text. The minister said, what? Well, you know, that's what father used to call them. They're not actually called that in the Bible, but it's all those texts that begin like this. Be glad in the Lord, or rejoice greatly, shout for joy. And all that stuff, you know, such a lot of them. Once father actually felt so bad that he decided to count them all and discovered that there were more than 800 of them. And the guy said, whoa, 800. Yes, that's the truth. 800 texts that all tell us to be glad and rejoice. That's why Father named them the rejoicing text. Because he said, if God took the trouble to tell us 800 times to be glad and rejoice, he really must want us to do it. And Father felt ashamed that he hadn't done it more. After that, they began to become such a comfort to him that, you know, when things went wrong, like the ladies... Aiders got in a fight, or the auxiliaries weren't quite right, or whatever. Why, well, it was those texts that Father said made him think of the glad game. Here in this section of the book, we learn that Pollyanna is no Pollyanna. Cheerfulness that resulted from her faith in God was not an airheaded escape from reality into positive thinking. Instead, it was a simple childlike faith that actually learned from her father and trusted in God no matter what. In other words, real faith or real joy is just faith in action. That's what it is. You believe in God. You believe in Jesus. You believe in his saving purposes for your life. That he delights in it and he rejoices and sings over you. And as a result, you sit back and say, praise God. Wow, I don't know how to get there. I don't know how he does it, but I believe it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Like salvation, true joy is by faith. It is a divine quality that originates in God and God alone. He is the only thing that will satisfy it, and if we ask for it, he will joyfully give it to us. But as he does so, just like our salvation, we don't just receive it and say, okay, thanks, and sit on it. Instead, we work it out with fear and trembling. We receive the gift, and then we say, thank you, Lord. Now let me put it into practice. And as you command it, so too will I do it. You will say, be joyful, and I will choose, doggone it, to be joyful today. <laughs> We're going to have a good time on this trip no matter what. Kids, get in. Be happy. Right? It's a discipline. It originates in your heart. It's commanded by God. And it's to be done by faith. Not looking at your circumstances or anything else, but instead truly believing in who God is and the plan he has for you. 
I had a professor in seminary once. It was my eschatology class, my end times class. I went to that class expecting to learn, you know, how this worked. I came away confused. (laughs) There's all these different systems and ideas and ways of lining things up. But at the end of the day, what really stuck with me was this. My professor, Lanier Burns, would say this. Look, he would nearly start every single class, whether it was on cults, foreign religions, or whatever, on on all this different stuff that's out there, he would say, is Christ risen from the dead? Is he alive? Is he alive, church? Then what are you worried about? What are you... (laughs) If Christ is risen from the dead, then everything else is okay. That's it. At the end of the day, that's it. What else is there? If he's not, we're miserable. But if he is, that's all good. If Christ is truly risen from the dead, then God is not dead. And what else is there? This is our joy and this is our hope. Christ will return again and things will be made well. Until then we wait and we believe by faith that God is good. Father, we thank you for being our great and awesome God. You do everything just right and we don't get it. We look around and we make a mess and we see things that don't add up. And we're, I'm sinful, and we're sinful, and we're a church, and we fail. And Lord, I, I apologize for my sin of discouragement when I get down, and I don't believe in you, and I don't trust you. I pray that you would change me and give me joy. I pray that you would change us and help our hearts, Lord, for all the stuff we're trying to do, for missions, for evangelism, for worship, for fellowship, instruction, and righteousness, Lord, for all those good things. At the end of the day, change our hearts and help them to delight in you. That you will be our joy. You will be our gold. You will be our silver. And you will be our greatest good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.